Even as the war raged on the Western Front, a new deadly enemy inside the United States. In the spring of 1918, a strain of influenza appeared in the farm country of Haskell County, Kansas, and hit nearby Camp Funston, one of the largest Army training camps in the nation. The virus spread like wildfire. The camp brought desperate populations together, shuffled them between bases, and sent them back to their homes across the nation and in consecutive waves deployed them around the world. Between March and May of 1918, 14 of the largest American military training camps reported outbreaks of the flu. And then a second wave of the virus, a mutated strain even deadlier than the first. In Europe, the influenza hit both sides of the Western Front, called the Spanish Influenza, or the Spanish Lady, was misnamed due to accounts of the disease that first appeared in the uncensored newspapers of neutral Spain. During World War I, more soldiers from all sides died from influenza than in combat. The pandemic continued to spread even after the armistice before finally fading into the early 1920s. No cure was ever found. Welcome to another episode of Print the Legend, an AP U.S. History podcast where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and in part three of our three-part series on the First World War, we look at the close of the war and President Woodrow Wilson's 14-point plan to bring about peace in Europe. Well, at least a 22-year peace. On December 23, 1918, past the Statue of Liberty, sailed the first ships of the returning Doughboys, fulfilling the battle cry, Heaven, Hell, or Hoboken, by Christmas. Vessels of all types steamed out to greet the transports whose decks and riggings were black with waving men. As the flu virus wreaked havoc on the world, Europe and America rejoiced at the end of hostilities. On December 4, 1918, President Wilson became the first American president to travel overseas during his term to Europe. to shape the peace. The war brought an abrupt end to the four great European imperial powers, the German, Russian, Austrian-Hungarian, and Ottoman empires evaporated, and the map of Europe was redrawn to accommodate the new nations. As part of the armistice, Allied forces followed the retreating Germans and occupied territories in the Rhineland to prevent Germany from reigniting a new war. As Germany disarmed, Wilson and the other Allied leaders gathered in France at Versailles for the Paris Peace Conference to dictate the terms of a settlement to the war. After months of deliberation, the Treaty of Versailles officially ended the Great War. (laughs) 
President Wilson labored to realize his vision of the post-war world. The United States had entered the fray. Wilson proclaimed to, quote, make the world safe for democracy, end quote. At the center of the plan was a novel international organization known as the League of Nations, and it was charged with keeping a worldwide peace by preventing the kind of destruction that tore across Europe and affording mutual guarantees of political independence and territorial integrity to great and small states alike. The promise of collective security, that an attack on one sovereign member would be viewed as an attack on all, was a key component to the 14 points. But the fight for peace was daunting. While President Wilson was celebrated in Europe and welcomed as the God of Peace, his fellow statesmen were less enthusiastic about his plans for post-war Europe. America's closest allies had little interest in this League of Nations. Allied leaders sought to guarantee the future safety of their own nations. Unlike the United States, the Allies endured the horrors of the war firsthand, and they refused to sacrifice further. The negotiations made clear that British Prime Minister David Lloyd George was more interested in preserving Britain's imperial domain, while French Prime Minister Clemenceau sought a peace that recognized the Allies' victory and the Central Powers' culpability. He wanted repatriations, severe financial penalties, and a punishment on Germany's future and inability to fight a future war. The fight for the League of Nations was, therefore, largely on the shoulders of President Wilson. And by June of 1919, the final version of the treaty was signed and President Wilson was able to return home. The treaty was a compromise that included demands for German repayment, provisions for the League of Nations, and the promise of collective security. For President Wilson, it was an imperfect peace, but an imperfect peace was better than none at all. Eager doughboys stepped onto a soil that more than 126,000 of their comrades would never set foot on again, for they lay behind in the gutted fields of Europe. But for those come home, there were bands and parading nurses. There was Black Jack Pershing himself. He led them over and he led them back. In Washington, troops in orderly array swept down Pennsylvania Avenue. Through a victory arch, horse-drawn caissons went rolling along in final triumph before the motor trucks stole their glory away. The parade was reviewed by President Wilson, whose 14 points had done much to bring the peace. The real fight for a League of Nations was on the American home front. Republican Senator Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts stood as the prominent opponent of the League of Nations. As chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and an influential Republican Party leader, he could block ratification of the treaty. Lodge attacked the treaty for potentially robbing the United States of its sovereignty. Never an isolationist, Lodge demanded instead that the country deal with its own problems domestically in its own way, free from the collective security, an oversight, even a marriage offered by this League of Nations. Unable to match Lodge's influence in the Senate, President Wilson took the case to the American people in the hopes that ordinary voters might be convinced that the only guarantee of future would be peace through the League of Nations. 
But during this grueling cross-country trip by rail, President Wilson suffered an incapacitating stroke. His opponents now had the upper hand. Laying bedside incapacitated with his wife at his side, President Wilson's dream for the League of Nations died on the floor of the Senate. Lodge's opponents successfully blocked America's entry into the League of Nations, an organization conceived and championed by the American president, a president who was a hero in Europe. The League of Nations operated with 58 sovereign members, but with the United States refusing to join, refusing to lend it American power, the United States was indeed on its own. As borders and boundaries were being reestablished in Europe, and even new boundaries and borders being drawn in the Middle East with a now broken up Ottoman Empire, the 1917 Russian Revolution inflamed American fears of communism. The fates of Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, two Italian-born anarchists who were convicted of robbery and murder in 1920, epitomized a sudden red scare. Their arrest, trial, and execution, meanwhile, inspired many leftists and dissenting artists to express their sympathy with the accused, such as in Maxwell Anderson's Gods of the Lightning or Upton Sinclair's Boston. The Sacco Vanzetti case demonstrated an exacerbated nervousness about immigrants and the potential spread of radical ideas, especially those related to international communism. In the United States, the war might be over in Europe, but the war is just beginning with racism and nativism. World War I decimated millions and profoundly altered the course of not only American history, but world history. Post-war instabilities led directly toward a global depression and, a few decades later, a second world war. The war sparked the Bolshevik Revolution, which led the Soviet Union and later the Cold War. It created Middle Eastern nations and aggravated ethnic tensions that the United States could not overcome even in its domestic front. As the United States had fought on the European mainland as a major power, America's place in the world was never the same. By whipping up nationalist passions, American attitudes towards radicalism, dissent, and immigration were forever poisoned. Post-war disillusionment shattered Americans' hopes for the progress of the modern world. And as the war came and went, leaving in its place the bloody wreckage of an old war through which the United States traveled to an uncertain and new future. At home, the United States grappled with the harsh post-war realities. Racial tensions culminating in the red summer of 1919, when violence broke out in at least 25 cities, including Chicago and Washington, D.C. 
The riots originated from wartime racial tensions. Industrial war production and massive wartime service created vast labor shortages, and thousands of black Southerners traveled to the North and the Midwest to escape the traps of Jim Crow and Southern poverty. But the so-called Great Migration sparked significant racial conflict as white Northerners and returning veterans all fought to reclaim the jobs that their neighborhoods had, but now went to new black immigrants from the South. Many black Americans who had fled the Jim Crow South and traveled halfway around the world to fight for the United States would not so easily accept post-war racism. The overseas experience of black Americans and their return triggered a dramatic change in the black communities. W.E.B. Du Bois wrote boldly of returning soldiers, quote, we return, we return from fighting, we return fighting make way for democracy, end quote. But white Americans desired a return to the status quo, a world that did not include social, political, or economic equality for black people. Coming up next time on Print the Legend, a podcast for AP U.S. history students where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up, we enter a new era in American history, an era that can only be marked by the word roaring. Bootleggers, flappers, bathtub gin. Life was roaring and the music was hot and everyone, everywhere, was dancing to the beat of the Charleston. But that was on the surface. In reality, the Roaring Twenties struggled with rampant nativism, racism, and the emergence of fundamental theology in the Scopes Trial of 1925. I hope you'll join us for that two-part series of the Roaring Twenties, On the Surface and in Reality. I'm Mr. Nasosi, and I look forward to welcoming you back next time. Until then, keep learning. Keep learning.